Well, I think I must uh, start by mentioning how we ended up uh, in Isaiah 63, in what is usually a, a, a date in the year where we typically go to those passages in the New Testament that speak of resurrection. In the Gospels, in the words of Paul, perhaps to, to, to the Corinthians in, in chapter 15. The Old Testament speaks richly and wonderfully about resurrection. This passage in particular speaks about the king who overcomes his foes. And the reality is, one of the things we must come to terms with the resurrection is who is the one who was risen or raised from the dead? Who is this king? And scripture, as often is the case, presents us with a view of Christ that uh, uh, goes beyond what is popular culture even within evangelical circles. We think of Christ and we tend to focus on certain elements and to the detriment of other elements that are just as present and just as important in having a, a comprehensive, I'm going to use the word, although it's often used uh, in, uh, in, in different ways, a, very, uh, a more holistic view of the ministry and the work and the person of Christ. And ask yourself, the two passages that we just read in Revelation 19 and uh, the passage in Isaiah 63, did it make you feel uncomfortable in some way? Did it make you feel somewhat awkward? Or some of these words about um, blood-stained uh, garments sounded rather difficult to you? I would suggest if that's the case, I'm not saying it was with you in particular, but it is often the case. If that's the case, it's because you have a narrow, not necessarily wrong, but a very narrow understanding of who Christ is. And on Easter, or on any occasion, but we're in Easter Sunday, we must come to terms and understand that the risen king is not just a uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who wages war and overcomes sin, death, and all his enemies, whether spiritual or physical. Whether in the spiritual realm or in the physical realm, he overcomes. And both Isaiah and John in these two passages, communicate to us this idea of, of a, a war-waging king. They communicate so, uh, something that is somewhat uncomfortable to us because of our modern proclivities, something of this Jesus who wages war. John and Isaiah speak of battle. It is not for nothing that he is called the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords. You only become the King of Kings if you defeat them. You only become the Lord of Lords if you defeat them and overcome them in battle. 
It is not for nothing that in the Old Testament our Lord is called the Lord of hosts. And we use that word so often in our singing and in our praying. But we need to realize when we call him the Lord of hosts, we're saying he's the commander of the hosts of heaven, of the armies of heaven. And he is able to make battle and he's able to withstand his enemies. Yes, he overcomes evil. He overcomes the grave. He overcomes death and Satan on the, on the empty tomb with the empty tomb. But the empty tomb speaks much more than that. It speaks of him overcoming all of his enemies once and for all. And that's what we will consider this evening. The passage in particular is in Isaiah 63, verses 1, 2, and 3, where we, I'll read it again for, for, for us, where it says, Who is this who comes from Edom? With, dry, with dyed garments from Bozra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I, I have stained all my robes. I want to try, however difficult the task is, uh, I'm sure, to try and explain as simply as possible what these words mean. That is, in fact, the, the task of a preacher, to explain simply. And so often that's where we fail. But the task for us is to Understand. My task is to explain simply. Your task is to understand, to listen carefully, and to try and understand. This passage speaks to us about Christ, the risen King. And we will look at it in two ways. The two sides of the same coin. One, the risen King is the one who redeems his people. But number two, the, one, the, the second part, which is probably a little bit more uncomfortable but nonetheless true, is that the risen king is the one who tramples over his foes. So number one, the risen king is the one who redeems his people. Isaiah was one that was given the privilege, perhaps like no other prophet, of looking beyond the corridors of time, seeing what lies ahead. He saw what would happen to, to his people, to the people of Israel, he saw what would happen after, uh, with the kingdoms divided with, to the kingdom of Judah, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. He experienced the, throughout his ministry a prolific, uh, long record of ministry, 50 years. He experienced four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Akaz, and Ezekiah. And during these 50 years, he witnessed a lot of these things come to pass. You cannot be a prophet uh, like he was and not see uh, some of these prophecies uh, come to bear. He saw the removal of the ten tribes, the, the, the kingdom of the north, the kingdom of Israel. And he spoke about the judgment that was to come on the kingdom of the south, on the kingdom of Judah. And immediately here it speaks of something. It speaks that the Lord does punish sin. God does not condone sin. 
If that's one of the one of the main themes, one of the main takeaways from reading the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, is that God does not play fast and loose with sin. That the Lord is holy and righteous and he judges. That he who sits on the throne sees all and judges all. And Isaiah warned. There's, uh, the book of Isaiah is a series of warnings that the Lord is coming and he's going to carry out justice. And indeed he did. Not in the time of Isaiah, but a century or a hundred years or a little bit more than a hundred years later, the prophecies came true. Judah was taken captive to Babylon. Isaiah did not leave, live to see that, but it nonetheless happened. But it didn't stop there, did it? Fortunately, graciously, not, it did not stop there in pronouncements of threat and of judgment. Uh, a professor of mine, he, he called uh, the book of Isaiah, he was somewhat of a, a geek with the book of Isaiah. He used to say that the book of Isaiah is a book about salvation through judgment. That in all of the book of Isaiah, although it's filled with threats, there is glimmers and, and sprinkles of, of, of promises of redemption that speak about God uh, separating a people from himself. And we see that in this passage of ours. Look back at verse 1. Although it is a passage that speaks of uh, blood-sprinkled uh, garments, blood-stained robes, you still have there glimmers of redemption, of salvation, of deliverance, of peace. Look at verse 1. One who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. He says, I who speak righteousness, in righteousness, mighty to save. It is a wonderful thing to see that even in the midst of judgment, or through judgment, salvation comes. It goes right through the Israel's sin. And even today, I would say it goes through the failures of of, the, of mankind. Even now, that is the glorious message of the gospel. Against the backgrounds of the sin of, of mankind, God saves. Against the background of judgment coming, God saves. Against the background of God overcoming his enemies, and treading them, trotting them, trampling them underfoot. God still saves, delivers, brings peace and redemption. So then in our text, it is about redemption as well. It is about judgment, but it is about redemption. Of course, Isaiah probably saw this as a redemption from the punishment or the, or the, the, the deliverance from Babylon. But we know better because we now have the New Testament that interprets the Old. And we know that what Isaiah thought he saw was actually pointing to something much greater that le uh, was beyond the horizon that he could foresee. Yes, prophetically, Isaiah spoke of the exiles returning. 
Oh, but the deeper meaning it was of those being gathered in from the from the waste places of the world. And that's what this passage speaks of. A victory. It is still the message today. A message of salvation. A message of a risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is asked, who is this, who is this one? Who is he? Who is this who comes from Edom? The answer is Christ. Christ. But you should note, and I, I mentioned this to, to someone just before the, the service, uh, you should note that when Christ is being spoken of here, it's no longer the suffering Christ, even though so often this passage, especially when it comes to the treading the winepress alone and uh, clothes uh, stained with blood, uh, often is interpreted as speaking of Christ dying on the cross alone and treading the winepress alone. That is not what is being spoken of here. It is not the suffering Savior. It is not the, suffer the crucified Lord Jesus it is often interpreted in that sense. I know I've done so. But here it's not speaking of his own blood. However glorious the gospel of, of the cross is, here is speaking of something that goes beyond the cross to the empty tomb and to what Christ does after his resurrection. This is the Jesus who comes from Edom and he overcomes his enemies. I must say that uh, what John Calvin says here, and, and you can look it up and, and see it verbatim, but he says this chapter has been violently distorted by Christians by applying it to the sufferings, the passion of Christ. The point that, that, Isaiah, uh, that Calvin is making regarding Isaiah, that uh, this is, lies beyond Isaiah 53. Isaiah already prophesied about the atonement. Not that he couldn't come back to it, but the atonement, the dying Savior has been done with, has been prophesied. This is another element of the prophecy. It's about his resurrection. It is about his glory as the King of Kings, one who received all authority on heaven and on earth. After all, it speaks of one who's garments have been stained whose robes have been stained whose, whose clothing and, uh, and garments have been sprinkled with blood but it's, it's someone else's blood it's not the blood in this passage it's not the blood of the, of the one who comes from Edom and, uh, uh, and from Bozrah in Edom no it's it, it, the image being presented to us is a, the image of a general returning from battle. We need to speak a little bit about this and, and understand what is the picture that is being given to us. Nowadays, when we speak about war in modern days, it's very hard to understand this. But think about what happened in those days. When two nations, two uh, cities went to war with one another, usually the fighting would happen in the field somewhere between those two cities. And the, the general, the king, the captain would take his army out to battle. Let's say Jerusalem is having a, 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 a battle again with Edom, as in this passage. The, the, the armies of Jerusalem would go out to battle, but who stayed behind in this, in this case? The women, the children, the elderly would stay behind. 
those who were incapable of fighting would stay behind and think about how they felt. They would have been day after day looking up to the horizon, hoping to see something, hoping to see some movement, some dust that told them that the king or the, or the general or the, the, the army was coming back. They eagerly awaited the return of those who went to war on their behalf with that other country. And then in the, at the distance, they would see it. They would see some returning from the field of battle, from the field of war. The general perhaps coming for first. Is he still alive? That's good news. Probably the, the, uh, the war will have uh, been won then. The battle have been, will have been won. You look at him, even at a distance, and you start noticing, is, he, is, he, is his head held up high? Or is he, does he have a defeated look? Is he wounded? Or is he traveling uh, normally? Is he being carried or is he coming by his own, uh, in his own uh, power? Is he a casualty or is he not even there? Perhaps dead in the field of battle. This is the imagery that is giving, being given to us. And the point that is being made here is that the one coming, he's coming victorious. The picture that is being given to us by Isaiah is of a victorious army coming home, arriving. It's not an army, it's just the one. But it's the picture of arriving and cheering. Something that would bring peace and hope and joy to the hearts of those looking. That's why the war in this case, for those who are redeemed, is a good thing. The one who went to wage the war came back. Victorious, Yes, there's blood on his, on his garments, but it's not his blood. It's the blood of, the, of our enemies. That's a good thing. The battle has been won. Now there's the general of those armies. The, uh, the captain gets all the honor when he comes back. But think about the people who stayed behind. Just quickly. How they must have felt in those moments. You're behind, left in the city. Sometimes you're filled with hope. You look at the captain and you say, this is as sure as one we... But at other times, you're filled with negativity. You don't know really what's going on there. You look forward with holy excitement to the, to the coming of, of news, but at points you start to doubt. You can't imagine what it was like for those people who were left behind. Sometimes hope, sometimes fear. Sometimes there were some glimmers at the distance, some movement, and you thought it might be it, but then it was nothing. Sometimes the expectation, sometimes despondency. Perhaps calculating the, the probability and the odds of winning this battle. And then thinking about all the things that could go wrong. Maybe our enemies found an, a different ally. Maybe there is a, another, uh, another nation that has joined the battle. And now we, uh, we're done. Why am I saying this? Because now come back to Christ's people. There. 
on that weekend. Think about it. Friday, the Lord Jesus gets crucified, dies, gets buried or laid in the grave. And think about how they took all of this. The disciples in the upper room somewhere behind closed doors, fearful of the Jews. They wouldn't dare to come outside lest they, they would suffer the same consequences. The same fate as their master. The disciples in, on the road to Emmaus. Oh, we thought that he was the one who was to redeem us. We thought that he was the one who, who would redeem Israel. And we did hear some women. They came back and they said something about him being risen. But really? And perhaps you. You too perhaps are sitting here today. Thinking, is it really true? Is the battle really won? Or perhaps you're here thinking, oh, well, this battle is as good as lost. Victory will never come. Thinking that you will never again be delivered from the mighty hands of all your adversaries, of all your enemies. Perhaps you too are saying, is it possible for me? The answer lies not in, in the city walls, but looking to the horizon and seeing him who is coming. Looking to the empty tomb and seeing him who overcame Look outside the wall. Look outside that city gate. Again, to that picture of, of the battle that was happening in, in, the, uh, in, the, in first century uh, Middle East. You're looking outside and then you see the army come back. Then you see the general come back. And he's coming, but he's adorned uh, in his robe. He comes in his own power. It says in verse 1, he's traveling in the greatness of his strength. He's not defeated. That is the good news. He's glorious, he's glorious in his apparel. Yes, he went to the place of battle in Edom, or in Bozrah, in, in the land of Edom. But he's coming. And he comes from that battlefield. He has fought the battle and he has returned by his own strength. The king came, comes back. That is the answer that Isaiah 63 gives us to the despondency and to the, and to the sinfulness of the people. The king will defeat the enemies. When all those people were left in despair, Torn between hope and fear, here he comes. And he says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. I have now come. As the commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. And this is what Jesus looks like. One who is apparelled in his glorious robe. One who is, speaks righteousness, who is mighty to save. So the king, the risen king presented to us here is one who speaks redemption to his people. One who is able to deliver, willing to deliver. One who is powerful. One who has done it all. 
and comes back victorious. That's the, the picture in the resurrection. He sums it up. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's who he is. As I said this morning, Christ does not do half a job. He did not just come and and preach on earth and die the death and it's done. No, he does the full thing. He redeems fully. And he was raised so that redemption would be full. He does not just go to the cross, die an atoning death. He also earns for us the resurrection in him. But the risen king, and that's perhaps the, part, the difficult part, also speaks to us about the defeat of the enemies. And there's a, there's a two-sided part to this. The other side of the coin, he redeems his people, but he defeats his enemies. And within the defeating his enemies, there is a two-sided lesson for us. There, is two, there are two applications for us. One is one of comfort to the people of God. Again, there is celebration. Our king, our Lord, defeats the enemies. He trods his enemies. And, and if you're a child of God, if you're one of God's people, you say, yes, I have enemies. Where are the enemies of God's people? Well, sin Sin is one of the enemies of God's people. Sin is perhaps the greatest of enemies. Is it not for you? An enemy? Do you not wage war against sin? I hope you do. Because otherwise that means something quite differently. It means that you're not a child of God. Because all children of God, they hate sin. They despise sin. They see sin as the greatest of enemies. It may be that you don't see sin as an enemy. That you love sin actually. That you cherish it. You embrace it. You feed sin. That you allow it to live around you. That you leave it alone in your life. But if you're gods, you will hate sin. You must hate sin. This is a simple test to see if you're Christ or not. Do you love the Lord and do you hate sin? Do you love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates? And so for us, this speaks of great, uh, a great comfort that Christ comes and defeats the enemies. Sin is defeated. Sin is defeated by his resurrected body. He, as the king, he treads sin. He tramples it. But there are other enemies too. As I said, it's not just on the spiritual realm, but there, is, there are enemies in the physical realm. Enemies of the church. Enemies of God. This, the world, the flesh, and the devil are enemies. The world is an enemy of Christ, of God, and of God's people. And I say this, an ungodly world, the the ungodly part or element of the world, because 
It is perfectly okay for Christians to have friendships outside of the church. But you have to be so very careful because the world draws you in and pulls you in. And you will not want to likewise perish as the Bible says. The world is not your friend if you're Christ's, if you're God's child. The flesh is an enemy. Even to the, as a Christian, Paul knew this. Oh, wretched man that I am, he cried out. Why? Because he knew that his own flesh worked against him. Some Christian preacher I once heard said, I am my own greatest enemy. And that's why you complain against the flesh. But then hear the word of, hear the word of comfort. Christ, the risen King, he tramples over the enemies. Even our flesh is trampled and will be trampled ultimately at his second coming. And that is a great message. Because that speaks of the victory of our Lord over all our enemies. But there is another side to trampling enemies. One that is not so much a word of comfort to the children of God, but one that is a word of caution to those who are not the children of God. Because you're either a friend or you're a foe. You're either an ally or you're either for God or you're against God. And this word speaks of what happens to those who are against God will trample them. God will stain his garments with the blood of those who waged war against him. It is not a, a, a pleasing thing to say in our culture. But yes, God is a righteous and holy God. He would want or he would have that all of us would turn from our sins to trust in him. And in fact, the invitation is universal. All that would come upon hearing the word of judgment and the availability of salvation, the invitation is there. But for many, and we know why, that invitation only works to harden the hearts. And those hardened hearts those ardent hearts, those rejected, scorned, and re- despised invitations will only work to make the punishment worse and worse. You hear the warnings, and you harden your heart. You hear the invitation, and you say, it's nothing to do with me. I don't care. I don't want this. In fact, I would rather, much rather be in some, in some other place right now. But all enemies of God will be trampled. Our text makes it very clear. Our text makes it very clear. He comes from Edom. Edom was the... uh, I won't go into detail this evening. We're already uh, stretched out. But Edom is uh, is the nation that came out of Esau, uh, Jacob's uh, twin brother. And they were, uh, in many ways, the same 
throughout their lives. Born of the same mother, lived in the same quarters. They were virtually attached at their birth, one grabbing the other by the heel. And yet so different. And yet so desperately different. Edom was the spiritual enemy of God's people. It was the spiritual enemy of God, not just God's people. And Edom was also an enemy of God's grace. So death, sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil will all be trampled because of the empty tomb, because of the risen Christ. That's what happens to those who are enemies. They are killed. And for us, God's children, that is a comfort. But for the enemies themselves, it is for their ruin. The Lord says he comes from Edom, from Bozra, with coals stained with blood. But that is the good news. Because sin is finally defeated. Because tears will finally be wiped away. It is Jesus himself who does this. And yes, he might not fit our modern understanding of who Jesus is. He might not garner a lot of attention and a lot of Facebook or social media likes and clicks if you post something like that, this in your social media. Probably attention will be drawn. But in the, this in our society is something that is anathema to say even in Christian circles. But the Christ we serve is this Christ who said, bring here the en- those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Does this fit the Jesus you know of? His clothes are stained because he wages war and he comes out victorious he goes into the wine press alone and he wins the victory for himself and for his people alone no nations came to help him the peoples they were nowhere to be seen seen to help him he says no one was with me for i trod them them in my anger says the lord on the last day of history This is what's going to happen. The Lord Jesus, he will come down. He will take his people and he will trample his enemies. He will sift the wheat from the chaff. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter the kind of life you've lived, whether you went to church or not, whether you you got baptized or not. It doesn't matter whether you lived a morally upright life or not. The only thing that will matter on that day that will make you different, that will make the distinction between those who who are his people and those who are his enemies is whether you have repented of your sins and trusted him and him alone for your salvation. There will be many grapes on that day under his feet. I don't know if you know the picture here. Back when I was a kid, we still did this from time to time, mostly as out of, a, out of a curiosity and tradition. 
not so much because there was no equipment, but the wine press. The wine press is, is this place where you put all the grapes and then you throw them with your feet. And apparently the, win the wine tastes better if you ask the old, the old timers. Jesus will bring all those grapes, all those enemies, doesn't matter big or small, young or old, religious or non-religious, all of those who are enemies, and he will trample them under his feet. Godless people, church people, pious people, sin people who sinned in outward ways and people who are just uh, more respectable than that. All of them. All of them. All of those who said, away with you. I don't want this kind of Christ. He will say, away with you. I never knew you. That's what is going to happen. All of those who rejected him in his first coming will have to bear with his rejection at the second coming. And great will be their grief. And great will be their misery. And great will be their suffering. John saw this. In the island of Patmos, in the book of Revelation, we have the, the him giving us a picture of this. And it is beautiful. And it is scary at the same time. We read through most of it. But you begin by reading about this heaven exalting uh, the Savior. You know what's the the antecedent, what happens just before this uh, heaven exalting uh, the Savior. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belongs to the Lord. You know what brings the heaven into this rapture of celebration? Because the righteous judge has acted righteously, righteously and he's judged the sinners. Babylon has fallen like a mill, says there, like a mill thrown into the abyss. On the last day, if you're God's enemy, and I say this respectfully and reverently, but this is what scripture testifies to. On the last day, if you're God's enemy, if you die without Christ and without hope in this world, on the last day, as you stand before the judge, you will hear away with you to the fire of hell. And you know what's the last thing you're going to hear just before you enter into hell? It's all of heaven cheering and exalting the Lord for the Lord has judged you in his righteousness hallelujah salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. It is a difficult thing, but it is nonetheless a true thing. You know what caused the, all those, those women to pick up their harps and celebrate on the other side of the Red Sea? It was the fact that God had rained down the waters upon Pharaoh, and that was cause for great rejoicing. 
And that is cause for great rejoicing. In heaven we will see that as Babylon sinks like a millstone, as the world is brought under judgment, all of heaven will testify the God of all the earth has done rightly and has judged in righteousness. The hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. So what will it be? Will you bow your knee today? Willingly, voluntarily, or will you bow before the King of Kings? Because he will make you bow. This is the risen Savior that we serve. This is the risen King that we worship.